When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I talk to a special family friend and an amazing young woman, Vimbai Masiwe, about dealing with depression and mental health as a cancer survivor and as a millennial battling depression. We discuss the importance of understanding and destigmatizing mental health, the importance of embracing and not hiding mental health issues, and how the influence of culture and religion can play into the stigmatizing narrative. She also shares some tips for millennials and young people to manage their mental health. But before we begin, I just want to remind you that this podcast is for educational purposes and is not medical advice. If you need medical advice, please contact the appropriate medical professional. And one more thing, this year we are holding my annual mental health retreat in Dallas, Texas, 2nd to the 5th of December, and it's live. I'm so excited it's going to be live this year. As you all know, we had to do it virtually last year because of the pandemic, but this year will be alive and back and here to help you manage that post-COVID mental health mess. I think we all need help with that. I'm going to have amazing guest speakers. We're going to talk about trauma and how to deal with trauma and how to deal with just cleaning up the pressure and meant that has created such a mental mess in our life from all the changes we've had to deal with. As I said, we're going to have amazing guest speakers and there's a wonderful early bird special that ends on July 30th. So if you go to the show notes, you can register at drleafconference.com. I'd love to see you there. It is really going to be a life-changing experience. And now back to today's podcast. Vimbai, what a pleasure to see you again. You're a special family friend. We, my kids grew up with you and your mom and I are friends and you've got such an amazing story. I've interviewed you before and I'm so thrilled to be interviewing you again. Welcome and so great to see you, Vimbai. Caroline, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to speak with you again and it's just such a blessing to be able to share my story. So thank you for giving me a platform to do so. Oh, absolutely. You have a great story and you've you've turned it around and made it work for yourself in an amazing way. So for those people that don't know your story and which is most of my listeners and viewers, would you start by just telling your story and just how you've now become a mental health advocate and how you've sort of turned that story into something where you have a platform now where you help others, which is incredible. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So a bit about myself. My name is Mumbai Nasiwa. I'm 26 years old. In 2015, just after I turned 21, going into my final year of college, I was diagnosed with lymphoma. And I think with anyone who's diagnosed with cancer, it comes as such a shock, right? And interestingly enough, when a lot of my doctors felt I never really fully understood what was happening, my mindset when I had cancer was, I was very strong. I was like, oh, we're going to get through this. We're going to finish treatment. I actually said, can I go back to school? I was doing treatment in London. I said, can I go back to school in the US? And my doctor was like, it doesn't work that way. So I thought, well, okay. And then, you know, fast forward about a year later when my treatment had finished and I was getting ready to go back to 
what was normal life for me, I suddenly began to struggle. And one thing that I found was I couldn't identify who I was anymore. And I couldn't separate myself from the identity of being a cancer survivor or having had cancer. I also, you know, you physically look different. You lose your hair. Some people gain weight. Some people lose weight. I'd kind of lost myself in all of that. And I remember just being so unhappy, but never understanding why am I so unhappy? I mean, I beat cancer. Shouldn't you be excited? You've got a second chance at life. What am I going to do with the second chance? That wasn't the mindset that I had. And a part of me felt guilty about that. And I knew my parents didn't know what to do with that either. I remember several months later, you know, I saw a psychologist, did a couple of sessions, and she did say, you know what, if you need to see a psychiatrist, you have depression and we'll treat it. But growing up in an African household and in a religious household, depression is, was never something that you could talk about in a positive light. It was, I distinctly remember it being the disease of the selfish. I remember, you know, as a child, not knowing anything about what depression was. I remember sitting in conversations with older cousins where they would say, oh, uh, if I find out that my spouse's family has a history of depression, I am not marrying that woman. So to hear you have depression, I immediately took a step back from that and didn't want a second part of my identity to be illness and kind of just bottled it in and moved on with life. Went back to school and tried to, you know, get myself together, fix myself, so to say. And then again, two years later, my depression got really bad. I was doing my master's. I couldn't get out of bed. I would cry all the time. And I'd call my mom and I'd be like, I'm so miserable. I'm so unhappy. And to an extent, I could identify some of the triggers behind that. And, you know, um, my mom's a wonderful person. She started to read. She just loves to read and to get new information. She started to learn about the brain. So it started off with essential oils. Then she started to want to understand, you know, what impact do these essential oils or what do they do for my body? She started to learn about the brain. Then she started to expand into understanding mental illnesses and what it, mental well-being was. And, you know, it was through her doing that that she almost said, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to struggle. She was very honest. She said, I don't understand what you're going through. I don't, it doesn't fully make sense to me, but all I can tell you that is it's okay. And the support that you need, I will provide it. And that was the first time I felt comfortable going to my GP and saying, I'd like to see a specialist. I'm not okay. I'm unhappy. And that's the process that we then started. I went to see a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and I look at myself now in a really good place. I believe I'm very happy with who I am as an individual. And I think to myself, if I hadn't had somebody who made it okay to talk about how I was feeling, I don't think I would be where I am today. And for me, that's what's brought out my passion about mental health and want, and being a mental health advocate. It's being that person for somebody that says, it's okay to not be okay. Now, let me be, let me help find the right experts who can talk about this with you, who let me be a source of information, a resource for people, especially, you know, being an African, being a resource for young Africans.
as well, where we don't have the large number of specialists in this area. I felt, you know, somebody needs to step in and that's where I've come in now. It's, I have, you know, somewhat of an audience. I have a voice. I'm respected in my, my career and what I'm doing. I come from a respectable family. People look up to that. And I think, let me make myself more human and be very honest about the journey that I've had in hopes that people get help on the journeys that they are in. Oh, that's incredible. And you've painted a whole picture there of so many different facets, you know, talking about the sort of African facet. Now, I interview so many African-American psychologists who are helping to break the stigma. And, you know, a lot of the work that I do is also telling people it is okay that depression and anxiety, they're not mental illnesses. You're not a broken brain. There's not a, you're not a diseased brain that there's yeah. actually, that those are triggers and warning signals of an underlying cause. And as you said so clearly in your case, there was a whole identity change around the cancer and there was a whole, but you needed to be able to be a thought detective to be able to process that, but you need to know it was okay. But the point is coming from so many of the people that I've interviewed have said the same thing, that they've had to actually help people to come to therapy. It's okay to talk. It's okay to share. And I always tell people, Vimbai, and you've heard me say this before as well, and you, I know you follow me on Instagram too, is that depression and anxiety, these are normal parts of life. They're not yeah. that you're a broken brain or you have a neurobiological brain disease, which is the narrative of today, but it's part of being human. If you're human, you're going to have depression in varying degrees from the various challenges of life. And we can't turn around and yeah. say, as you said, to, well, you over your cancer, you should be fine. It's not like that. It's, you know, you, oh, that was one element of your life, but it had ramifications and there was, it was a complete change in identity. And that mm. then led to the emotional. And there's nothing wrong with that. And how sad is it that we have this view? And I know it's very strong in African culture, having come from Zimbabwe, like yourself and South Africa and working in this environment. There's this thing that you must hide it. And I'm sure you're aware of this too, that only 3% of leaders are talking about their mental health. And only 4% of the church is talking about mental health. And when they do, yeah. it's wrong. It's about saying, oh, it's a disease, go see the doctor. Meanwhile, we have to start processing why we feel that way. And it's okay to feel that way. And everyone has periods where they feel that way. Yeah. So, you know, thank you for your story and for, for the platform that you now have to tell people that it is okay. It is normal. Yeah, I think, you know, when I, when I look at those, all those different worlds that I almost exist in, right, it is about that. It's. It's all about knowledge is power. And we live in a world where we have access to information like no other generation has had before. And I do think, you know, I'm going to touch on some of the things that you said. First of all, in terms of this expectation or this of being perfect, of being happy all the time. I mean, we have, unfortunately, social media. We live in the age of social media where people's lives are picture perfect. I mean, there are some people where during the pandemic, I, you would think they never had a bad day. Life went on as normal. And I think, you know, the unfortunate thing is as young people, we get stuck in that cycle where we think that's normal to be perfect all the time. But what's actually normal is to wake up sometimes and be like, I'm just not feeling okay. The same way you wake up and you think I have a cold because the weather has changed outside. I like to think of, and you know, when people ask me a lot back home about depression, about anxiety. They, well, think about your brain having a cold. You know, it's not feeling well. Like my mind is not feeling well today. That's perfectly fine. It doesn't make you an abnormal human being. It makes you, it actually humanizes you. It makes you a normal person. And, you know, I think 
our minds store so much. It is all our lived experiences from the time we were born up until the age that you are now. Everything that we've seen, it's all processed in the same place. Everything that we've heard, the expectations that we have of ourselves, the expectations that other people have of us. Our mind is constantly having to process this throughout the day. And if you're having to process a million different things, whether it's conscious or subconscious, of course, it's you know going to need a bit of a shutdown. It's like a computer that's running too fast and needs a break at some point. And you know, I think we have to learn to listen to our bodies, the way we to listen to our mind, the way we listen to our body when it's fatigued, when it's tired, when your mind is like, "Whoa, I've processed way too much in this period of time, and I also need a break." We have to respect that. We have to respect our minds asking us to pause and take a step back. Which is another thing that moving a little bit further, but it's another thing that I like to talk about a lot more is we also live in a world where success is being financially well off. And in order to do that, we overwork ourselves or find the need to work these long hours and never take a break, never have that balance, never, you know, take time to just maybe enjoy the fresh air or do something that you genuinely love. And I believe that's, that's a lot of pressure on our mind when you're not allowing your mind to have some enjoyment, when you're not allowing it to take a bit of a breath because we're pushing to reach this success that, to be honest with you, the mark is going to change. As we live, what success is today is not what success is tomorrow. It's going to change. It's inevitable. So it's, you know, it's all of that. And then we look at, you know, the world of traditions and religion. That's a huge one for me because personally, I did ask myself, am I a bad Christian? Do I not pray enough? Like, do I not read the Bible enough? Like, what is wrong with me? And one thing I learned is, you know, when I read the Bible for myself, it talks about Jesus healing the sick. People were sick. People were unwell. So that's a normal part of life. It's, of course, in today's world, you're going to be unwell. You know, me having cancer, for instance, was not as a result of me doing something wrong. It was being a human in this world today. It was being a human in this world and my body reacting to maybe some of the elements I was exposed to over a certain period of time. It's the same thing with my mind. So it's exposed to whatever it's exposed to over a certain period of time gets a little bit unwell and needs healing, needs treatment. It's not, you know, being demon possessed or, you know, being cursed in that sense. And then I also think it's when on the other side of it, when we see people in the church or in any other religious institution struggling with mental health, we turn to, to, we tend to turn away, turn our backs on them because we're judging and we're saying, well, that person is probably not a good Christian. And that was another element of what I didn't want. I didn't want to have, you know, the church turn its back on me or my church leaders turn their back on me. And, you know, there were two things that my parents said. My dad said, number one, science comes from God. So the science of doctors and specialists being able to help you, that came from God. So it's of God, like, get treatment, get help. And the other thing my mom said to me was, God is love, just like a parent. She said, as a mother, if my child is suffering, I'm going to love my child and help them through that suffering. 
I'm not going to close my eyes and hope, well, she'll figure herself out and hopefully come back to me. And she said, you know, in the home that we've raised you in and what we've taught you to be Christianity or what we've taught you to be a believer, it's God is love. And it's that love that I express to you as a parent, he expresses to us as, you know, God and the one, the person that he is. And I think it's, it sounds so simple when I say it now, but people don't get it. I think, and when we look at the African continent in particular, we've got a long way to go in terms of shifting that mindset, in terms of moving away from judgment and moving to love, moving away from, you know, these notions of these external bad, you've done something wrong or you've got a curse on you or there's a bad spirit in you. That's not the case at all. And, you know, in a lot of the conversations that I have with my friends, I, I love to emphasize that, that like you haven't done anything wrong. Nothing in your wheelhouse would have caused this situation to happen. It's, it's just life and it happens to all of us. I'm so excited to finally announce that we are going to be back in person for my end-of-year mental health retreat in Dallas, Texas, December 3rd through 4th. This year's conference is all about helping you manage your mental health and clean up the post-COVID mental mess. I'll be doing sessions on trauma recovery, healing anxiety, unwiring toxic thinking habits, and more. Plus, we will have amazing guest speakers, VIP workshops, swag bags, and so much more. And we will be offering CMEs and CEUs. Early bird tickets are on sale right now until July 30th, so don't wait. Get your tickets now at drleafconference.com. The link will be in the show notes. You express that so beautifully, and you know, I've been in this field for 38 years now, and just how, listening to how you're saying it is, it's true. That is the message that is so needed to be not just in Africa, but in every country. You know, I teach in churches around the world. I teach in neuroscience conference around the world. I teach, train doctors. I train education, government. In other words, there's, but this, and this is a consistent theme. There's certain areas and pockets that have a bit more insight, mm-hmm. but in general, this whole thing of, 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 of seeing depression, the current mental health narrative is terrible too, because it tells you if you're feeling depressed, there's something wrong with you. You have, you're a broken brain. You, so now here you've gone through cancer or you've gone through some adverse childhood experience and or bullying in the workplace or something to, to, to tremendous trauma, loss or grief. And you're feeling depression. You go to your doctor and they tell you you have clinical depression. That's also the wrong narrative because now they're telling you that you've got an illness on top of an experience. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. you're a human in life responding to adverse circumstances. So it's perfectly normal to feel depression in the pandemic if you can't see someone. It's perfectly normal to get totally frustrated and depressed being stuck at home with just your parents and siblings when you need to get out there and experience life. It doesn't mean you have a mental disease. And that's the message that is such an important narrative that I'm very pleased that you're bringing forward and that I've been fighting for 38 years to bring into the space as well to help people to recognize that depression and anxiety, etc., these are messengers, helpful messengers that are telling us that there's some root cause and we need to be the thought detective to analyze that root cause and to find what's going on and why and manage that. And it's okay. And that whole concept of love, you know, I get so many people from the church environment. I was just actually interviewing, doing a a seminar at a church the other day. And the reason they called me in was this statement. They said, we've got so many people with anxiety and depression 
and we've been telling them to go and memorize scriptures and do this, but there's still problems. You know, they think we're doing something wrong. So, well, finally, there's a little bit of light going on. So when I explained to them, you know, that, and they said this, this has not helped them just going because there they're using, and I said, well, you're using scripture as a band-aid. You're using God as a genie. And that's not the principle of love. Love is, yeah. is a, is a restoring to balance. It's a survival instinct that we have. It's a call to wisdom. And we see that the brain and the body are wired for love. That's the neurobiology. And we see as well that from a neuropsychological perspective that we have an optimism bias, which means we're drawn to the negative, not because of the negative itself, but because of the restoring of the balance back to, to love because it's threatening survival. So anything that threatens survival, we are always trying to get balance back as humans. And that's completely drawn towards love. So if there's anything that's goes, if, if you're feeling depressed and you get told you've got demonic oppression, you haven't said enough scriptures, you're just a bad Christian. I mean, you are basically adding fuel to the fire. You're making that, yeah. you're removing hope. You're changing that whole environment. And because mind and brain are not the same, mind is 99% of who we are, mind, spirit, and soul. And brain is our physical part of our body, which is one to 10%. You, you have to pay attention to the mind and you can't put the physical rules onto the mental rules. And that's what's happened a lot in the current narrative is there's a subsuming of the mental into the physical, which doesn't solve the problem. And then in the religious world, there's a subsuming of the mental battling of just being a human into some kind of externalized religious law or something that you've broken. And both cases remove hope and both cases make you feel terrible about yourself. Whereas yeah. the true narrative is that being live and being human is so important. And that's why I talk a lot about in my most recent book, I talk about the messy mind. And that's why I wanted to just throw that out at you that we've got this messy mind and we've got this wise mind. A wise mindset made in God's image that, that like you and I are using a wise mind now to have this analysis, this discussion, this in-depth discussion. And we have our messy mind, which is at the front line. When we awake, we're experiencing life, as you also said, from from the beginning, from a certain point in the womb to the age we're at now, we have converted every experience, which is eight to 10,000 a day times the age that yeah. you're at. It's a lot of stuff. You have built into your brain as thought trees and into your mind because it's your mind separate from your brain and your mind's all around you as these waves of energy and into your DNA. So this is a reality. We've converted experience into physical substance in three places and we are acting and operating from those. So if it's adverse, obviously if it's a toxic tree and I'm holding up a wiry tree, it's going to be a negative experience. It's going to be a negative output. And to tell someone that that's because you are a bad Christian or because you are oppressed or because you are a broken brain is terrible. But if you say, hey, that's okay. That's just a, there's, there's, there's a warning signal of depression. And that's a helpful messenger. Let's analyze that. Let's gather awareness. Let's embrace it. Let's process it. Let's reconceptualize it. You're then giving people hope. You're giving them the ability to say, okay, I'm being a normal human. All of us. You know, even by the, you've read the statistics. They say one in four people have depression and one in five have anxiety yeah. and it's increasing. I don't agree with those statistics at all. A hundred percent of people battle with depression. A hundred percent of people battle with anxiety. A hundred percent of people battle with panic attacks, with even sometimes disassociation in those extreme states, anger, jealousy, shame, condemnation, because we're human. Those are normal human responses of our messy mind to just experiencing life. And if we take our messy mind and connect it with our wise mind, we can actually start managing. And I think that's what's missing. And as an advocate like yourself and the work that I do is trying to help people. I mean, the language I use is get accept the messy mind, which is great, but the messy mind needs to be managed by the wise mind, which means we need yeah. to self-regulate and we need to accept that this is okay and work through the process, which is exactly what you did. But now you raised some unique points around, I don't know if you want to comment or say anything about that, and then I want to talk a little bit more about specific things. Now let's go into the specific things you want to 
child so let's so, so let's talk about some of the things that just being in the misunderstanding that happens within Christian homes and within uh, churches and things. These 4% of churches are talking about mental health. And, and I just gave you the example of what's standard. What do you think, uh, what, what do you think can be done? Or how do you see your role? What can be done? What can people do to try and change that? Cause that's very specific. So I want to ask about Christian in general. Then let's talk about there's a definite distinct value systems in certain cultures around mental health. Let's talk a little bit about that as well. And then let's talk about then millennials. So let's go to three kind of specific areas about how we can advocate for a better understanding of mental health. Okay. So I think where we start is education, right? When we look at the church, when we look at our value systems, it all, when you dig deep and get to the core of it, it's what do we know and what do we not know? And I think one thing that I've been exploring a lot and reading about is with the brain, and I think this is something you can confirm, but the younger you are, the more agile your brain is and the more open to information, receiving information or changing our mindsets, the more ability we have to do that. We have it throughout our life, just so the, but, but it's unfiltered when we're younger. It's not as filtered. It's more filtered when you get older. Yeah. So I think one thing that I think we've always had to start with is when we look at the church and we that's where we learn a lot of our values outside of the family home, right? If you're raised in a specific religion, it's you learn at home before you go to school, you probably go to Sunday school and then you go to first grade or to nursery school. And I think one of the things that I've spoken to a lot and I work with a lot of organizations and private psychologists in South Africa is how do we meet people at where they are? So. If, for instance, I'm going to use Christianity as an example, is what are we doing in Sunday school to teach children about emotions, to teach them about their minds, and then using the Bible stories that they already know, applying that within that. I think we have to start with that education piece. And I think it's one of those things where younger generations are going to have to teach older generations. So our parents were raised to think that there's something wrong with you when you are anxious or when you're depressed. And one of the things we've seen in my family is the more my parents see it in their children and learn from it, learn about it from their children, the more they're open to discussing, even saying, you know, I think when I was 10, I don't think my mom would have ever told me if she was having a down day or if she was feeling sad. But today she'll tell me, you know what, I can't chat on the phone right now and I can't give you the best version of myself because I'm not feeling great. And that came from learning from us. So where did I learn it from? I learned it from, you know, going to see my psychologist or whatever it was. And I think the role that the church plays is creating those safe spaces for children. We start at a young age to learn about their emotions, to learn coping mechanisms to understand that we're not always going to be a hundred percent. We're not perfect people. We were never expected to be perfect people. I think if it was a world of perfect people, there'd be no point of us being here. It's no life. The whole thing is the messy mind. Yeah, it's the messy mind, messiness in messiness we repay and grow. So I think I think it's really about meeting people where they are, whether it's you know in religion or it's in value systems. It's finding ways to add to that. 
that can help people understand. I think one of the things that we always do, I think that we get stuck in is we think everything is mutually exclusive. Nothing can work together, but everything, you know, when you look at our value systems and health, the way we accept, you know, I can't imagine, you know, a situation where, I mean, there are churches that do this or a church would say, you don't go and get chemotherapy when you have cancer, knowing that chemotherapy will help you heal from cancer, right? And it was, you know, you partner the science with, you know, then you say, use the word of God to encourage yourself and to motivate yourself during this difficult time. It's getting to a point where we educate that the two work together and can work together. And I think that's where the hard work is, Caroline. It's figuring out how to make those two work together. I certainly haven't, but it's through conversation and through, I believe in the power of storytelling through conversation and through storytelling, telling our own stories, our own experiences, that we get to a point where you understand where am I going to meet someone so that they understand that this is worth exploring or my mind, my mental well-being is worth protecting or looking after. Mm -hmm. You've raised some very valid points there and they speak to, they, they really speak to what I've tried to do with my life as well, with my life's work. And you raise such good points. First of all, education is vital, and that's something we need to do in the schools. And I've been advocating for years. We've got to put mental health lessons or mind lessons into my kids. You've known my kids for years. They're from the age of three. They've been learning these systems. And in South Africa, I would train thousands of people in this area, but we've got to do it more. In the churches, well, I go to churches all over the place, and I'm amazed at how it's not spoken about. So that's the first thing. So education, you said raise another very uh, education from a very early age. We have to bring so history, geography, but let's bring in mind education yeah. as well. And you know, I speak to so many people now as do you, and there's an awareness of this. So what I'm really glad, pleased about in terms of education, there's a groundswell awareness that we need to bring mind, emotion and mind and what it brings. Mind to, when we talk about mind, we talk about mind, mind, brain, and we're talking about thoughts, emotions, et cetera, et cetera. That whole system needs to be incorporated from early days in schools and in, in religious environments. I totally agree with you there. There's definitely an increased awareness and an increased awareness has to be translated into action. That's the sort of yeah. next step. I definitely believe the awareness is, is, is growing. Then you talk about children learning from their parents. So this generation, like the millennials and Gen Z, teaching my generation. And the, yesterday I got asked an, a question on an interview about where have I got my most education? That obviously I've got all these degrees and I've got all this clinical trial research, but my most informative changes that I've made in my life that have been positive have come from my children. So I know about this mental health stuff, but knowing how to be authentic in myself, like you said, your mom now will tell you when she's not feeling, you know, that's something that it, you, the changes you need to make as a parent, we've got to listen to our children because, and, and that's something that my generation and my mother's generation, I remember my mom saying to me, why are you saying sorry to your children? Why are you asking your children what they think? They're your children. You tell them. I said, no, I don't. Because even though they may be eight or nine or 10 or 20, whatever, they are teaching me because their experience is different to mine. So I need to understand that next year. And I think that's a big education point for parents is we have yeah. to listen to our children and not just our 20 year olds. But and 30 year olds and 26 year olds, but the younger ones too. I remember my eight year olds teaching me stuff. When you guys were eight, you taught me stuff. When you guys were playing in my garden, I would listen to conversations. You so we have to, as parents, listen to our kids, and that's also part of an education. As parents, also asking your children the right questions. I think 
you know, your child acts out, ask them why. Try to understand why. I think when you just discipline, a child is left with, I'm already upset about whatever it is that caused me to maybe misbehave or change my behavior. They're processing that. And then they're processing the fact that I wasn't understood. I wasn't able to communicate properly what was going on. And then no one sought to understand. I just got into trouble. I was just told it was wrong. And then I think we send parents send mixed signals. It's wrong to be upset. But if you ask a child, why? I mean, maybe your child is mean to you because they're feeling, you know, upset about something. Why are you being mean? What happened, you know, to cause this, you know, change in behavior? I want to understand because I want to help you. And then, you know, you explain and you probably teach better ways of them communicating what that feeling feels like for them because they also learn their words from their parents. We learn our vocab from our parents. Everything we're learning from our parents and we're unable to, at certain ages, we're unable to communicate. We don't have the library to be able to no, do that. not at all. Absolutely. What you've raised is a brilliant point is to model that for our kids. The other day I was interviewing someone whose, whose child committed suicide at 14 and he, with no, there were no signs or anything. And he also, he thought, and one of his comments was he wished that he was always checking on their physical needs and everything, but he didn't ask them, how is your mental health? How are you feeling? You know, and yeah. that, that's, and as, as when as practicing as a therapist and just the work that I do now, it's one of the things we've got to ask our kids, not just about the physical, but about how are you managing and what you raised there, that point of a young child who's acting out. There's always, if the way we show up, there's always a reason. And if you teach a child, hey, you know, you I can see you're very angry or irritated or frustrated or you're fighting with your siblings or whatever. That's you know that's not the that's not the ideal way to act. But let's see what's going on. There's obviously something going on. You then, as you said, you're modeling the behavior. You're helping them to understand from the signals of the output. You're able to understand and be a thought detector to find the root and the cause. Yeah. And then you're giving the child the skills to do that. So as parents, we always have to be authentic about I am feeling sad because of this and this is okay I've got under control and this is the reason that I think that I'm feeling like this but I'll be okay but so then you model that for your child and then your child's able to then have a role model for the future and that's the kind of parenting that needs to be very dominant in in an education sense as well so I totally agree with you that's that's some that's an area that is very close to my heart that we have to develop and very insightful of you to say that and to see that and it's very important that you keep telling that message because it's not easy. A lot of parents will get it, but a lot of parents won't get that. And it's going to take quite a lot of time. And I've seen it to my own experience as a therapist and just in the work I do, is a lot of people will question, especially in the very strong religious environments or very strong sort of certain cultural environments. I'm not going to learn from my child. You know, there's that kind of, I'm not yeah. going to show my child I'm upset. I mean, I even encourage parents, if you're having an argument, don't do it behind closed doors. It's very confusing for the child. You know, rather let them see that explain that okay, we're frustrated with each other we're having this argument because of you know, on their level if they're little you're going to obviously try and keep it as calm as possible but let them understand what has happened why and what the solution is and let them see the solution but to hear parents fighting behind closed doors is terrifying for kids you know yeah. they need to understand reasons and that in itself can lead to a lot of trauma that a child doesn't know how to process and push down but if you do what you're saying if you encourage a child hey how are you feeling or you know tell me why are you acting out why you're giving the child a model for it's okay. I'm feeling okay. My mom still loves me. My dad still loves me. They tr they they're trying to help me, and you don't feel yeah. that invalidated. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. And I think 
Caroline, there's so much to unpack when it comes to mental health. I think we are literally at the tip of the iceberg in terms of not only understanding mental health, but also understanding how we get the right tools out, how we get the right education out, and how we help each other to help each other. And we have to do it. We have to do it. I'm sure you've also been aware of the statistics. I put them in my book, and I know you've read that, about the fact that between 96 and 2014, that the people are dying 8 to 25 years younger. And Mm -hmm. the age group being hit is 25, 24 to 65-year-olds. So you're in that bracket. And if you and it's from preventable lifestyle diseases and it tracks back to mind. So over the last yeah. 40 years, we've become so focused on the external. You said it, the success is money, the physical, the wellness movement, five steps to this. It's all this external thing that if I'm going to just get that, I'm going to be fine. Meanwhile, the mind development has been neglected terribly. That whole, that whole mind element of ours. And even in the church, spirituality has been subsumed into memorization of scripture or rules of how we should behave as opposed to exploration of love an exploration of who we are as a human. And until exactly, and, yeah. and that's created a model now. A model for mental health at the moment is totally destructive. The research the research is all over the place that that is not working. We can't just label and drug. We have to have community changes. We have to bring the together the older and the younger generation. We have to like like we've been talking, we have to learn from yeah. our kids. We have to bring the two generations together. In the pandemic they showed that people in the adults, elderly people suffered, they were depressed from isolation, but they managed their depression better than the younger 18 to sort of 25-year-olds because they've got more context. They've got more history of, okay, this has happened before, these things I've got through, I've got through bad things before, whereas the younger generation don't have that context, but the younger generation can deal with the isolation slightly better because they're more technologically wise, which the older generation aren't. So you bring those two generations together, you have a community solution, you know, where you can, where you can learn from, from generations. And I think that's the way, I, I don't know how you feel, but I know the goal that I have with mental health is in terms of education is to change, create community, much more community-based support where there's everywhere you go, every community has an opportunity to go and talk. You've got the therapist, that you've got the, not just the therapist, but we can all learn to listen and sit yeah. with each other and talk and share and educate and not just talk about it, but actually do it, have systems in place where people can go and sit and just listen and be listened to. No, I agree with you. I think the way we you know, we want to go to business networking events. We should be wanting to, you know, have community events where we are talking to each other. We are understanding each other. And a lot of us have shared experiences or experiences that are very similar where we could learn from each other. And it all comes down to being able to have that conversation. So it's those peer peer conversations. Yeah. So how would you, how are you thinking in practical solutions? Have you got to that point yet in, in your sort of thinking around mental health, sort of practical solutions for peer group support and talking about it and educating. You mentioned in the churches, sort of practical hands-on. Are you, do you have some plans in place or ideas? Or Yeah, so some of the ideas and the, you know, with the pandemic, it's been a little bit harder to roll out. But, you know, I've been working on this for about 18 months now with several friends of mine, is looking at community models. So the same way that, we, when we were growing up in South Africa, we called them having chill sessions. So we would get together on a Saturday afternoon, you know, people would come eat together, listen to music. We started doing this virtually. I did with a few of my friends virtually, and I want to scale this. It's having, coming together with the purpose of speaking about how we're doing mentally, where we're at, 
speaking about, you know, what are some of the challenges we are facing at work? How are we dealing with that and helping each other along those roads? I think that's really, really important to start. And I think starting with my network and kind of like rolling that out is important because it's, I can't advocate for people to do something where, not, where I don't buy into it and where I don't participate in it. And then we look at it on a community level. I think, you know, when I look at some of the work that we're doing on the African continent, my parents work a lot with orphaned children or children in vulnerable situations. We have to look at how do we use this? How can we roll out the same type of model in rural communities or in less advantaged communities? And it can't, you know, one of the, there's an organization that we've been talking to and working with. They train the elderly in the community because they're the most respected. Yes. The Friendship Bench. Yes, yeah. yes, I'm very familiar so, with it. I was actually going yeah. to mention that to you. It was one of the most successful mental health projects. Harvard picked it up, King's University, and one of the most successful mental health systems of training the elderly to yeah. listen to the young. Yeah, so I used a similar model in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So, we're, you know, I think with a lot of these organizations, you start in a country like Zimbabwe, it's very hard to get funding or to get buy-in even after they've appeared in like Harvard studies. So it's putting money behind programs like that. Also, you know, speaking to decision makers, to policy makers about why it's important to put funding behind that. You know, when you do a healthcare budget, let's think about mental health and, you know, let's not just use, drugs, not just building not just, money into no, drugs, put it into community. Into community. You know, a lot of African countries are bringing in community health workers. And their community health workers help with, you know, when children have a cold, what do you do? Home remedies or when women are pregnant pregnant, and there isn't a hospital nearby. Rwanda is a, a great model for this is, you know, there was the genocide against the Tutsi in yeah, Rwanda. Yes, and, I actually worked there mm, just after the genocide, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, mental health became a big topic of conversation, you know, after the genocide and even today, 27 years later. And one of the programs that they've been doing is training those community health workers that work with pregnant women or that work with unwell kids, training them around mental well-being and how to have conversations with people. What are the right questions to ask? How do you validate somebody's feelings and make sure that they felt like they've been heard, they felt like they've been listened to? And not necessarily give solutions, but just being able to exactly. process. Because re- that's what my research shows as well, is that if you just allow a person to process your reconceptualization may not necessarily be the solution that everything's not perfect, but just speaking about it gets it out and helps you to see it from a different, in a different way. And then you can come to terms with the uncertainty. Many times people are not looking for you to give them a solution. No, they don't want the solution. Yeah. They want to be heard and they want to be, feel like they've been seen. For me, it's putting not only my voice behind that, but seeing how else I can be an agent of change in terms of supporting those organizations, whether it be financially or creating, you know, room for them to have conversations with the right people and in the right spaces. I think, you know, I have to use what I can. And for me, what I can use is my voice. And, you know, I've been blessed with a family who can assist in funding some of these programs. And I think just being able to do that and also tap into the networks, tap into my friends, you know, crowdfunding for a lot of these is really, really important. And it's, it's, you know, where my focus is right now. 
Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so proud of you. It's incredible what you've done and it's just incredible. It's amazing. And it's just, you're on the right track. I can tell you you're on the right track and it's just a phenomenal and incredibly impressed. Let's talk about millennials because they, this, this an area that kind of breaks my heart because every church I ever go to, there's so much millennial bashing going on that I find like I'm the only one standing up on the stage defending and, you know, and I've done research with millennials and I just, you know, this is something millennials just have such a beautiful insight into humanity. You have such a, an incredible awareness of what love looks like. And it's a lesson that we need to learn. And millennials are pouring out of the church and, and there's reasons for that. And then let's forget about the church. Let's talk about millennials in general. So what are, and millennials mental health? I don't want to put in the information. I want to hear from your side. What, what do you, how do you talk about millennials and mental health? What advice can you give? What help? What input? How can we change this conversation and improve it? To be honest with you, Caroline, I think millennials are driving this conversation around mental health. I really do believe that. I think, you know, by being, I'm going to say assertive about, you know, people complain about millennials in the workplace. They're lazy. No, they're not lazy. They are acknowledging that they are burnt out or they are tired and they need a break. Millennials are driving the change. And, you know, like with any change, it's been, there's a lot of resistance behind it, right? It's, there's resistance from, you know, the workplace saying millennials are lazy because it's different from what generations before us. The baby boomers went crazy working. Exactly. And I think, you know, for me, it's encouraging us to continue to do that in the right way, to continue to challenge some of the things that we either don't understand or we do not agree with when it comes to mental health. I mean, we do it with everything, not just mental health. (laughs) You know, asking questions or challenging in the right way, challenging authority. Also, you know, it's this, it goes back to what we were saying about parents. Now, parents are human. They don't know everything. I think it's, and there's nothing wrong with asking them a question. Why did you make that decision as opposed to this one? This is the impact it had on me. Yeah, my kids do that with me all the time. And then by, they'll come to me and say, mom, when I was 10 or nine or 11, this is this and that, and this is the impact. I've got to listen to them and I've got to hear that that's where I was at that stage. And that stage, it was informed by certain, but now this is where I am. And I've got to look at it differently. I have to look at the impact and I can't change that, but I can change and I can repair and I can help processing into the future, make sure that that is a change in my life. And that's where millennials are fantastic. You're fantastic at pointing that out. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's hard to hear, I think, for older generations, to be honest with you, that a younger generation might have some answers that you don't have. But I think you know, millennials are playing a central role to this. And we're also kind of paving the way for Gen Zs, those that are coming after us. And then we also, you know, really care about, you know, studies have shown that, for instance, when you look at travel, millennials and Gen Zs are looking to go on vacation where they can also make a difference, right? So thinking beyond themselves in a way. And I think it's, it's, Things like that, that we we just have to encourage and we have to, you know, push through the discomfort or all the generations have to push through the discomfort of not agreeing or not understanding fully and allow us to make the changes that the world needs to see in terms of taking care of ourselves as a whole being, as opposed to just taking care of the, the physical 
version of ourselves. But- I love that. I am a big believer in the healing power of CBD. But with so many CBD products out there, it can be hard to know what is the best quality and worth the money. So, after doing extensive research and testing different products, I switched to Ned. They produce the highest quality, full-spectrum CBD extracted from organically grown hemp plants, all sourced from an independent farm in Colorado. Ned is a trusted wellness brand offering science-backed and nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. And... They do not cut corners, nor spare expense when it comes to CBD production. They use zero isolates or synthetic ingredients and share third-party lab reports for full transparency. Ned's high-quality products can be used as a sleep aid and help with insomnia, an anti-inflammatory, a natural pain reliever, to treat anxiety and PTSD, to treat depression, as a rich source of antioxidants, treatment of serious chronic conditions such as epilepsy, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's and more. If you want to check out Ned and try their CBD for yourself, I have a special offer for you. Go to www.helloned.com forward slash Dr. Leaf or enter Dr. Leaf at checkout for 15% of your first one-time order or 20% of your first subscription order plus free shipping. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D dot com slash Dr. Leaf to get 15% off your first one-time order or 20% off your first subscription order plus free shipping. Subscription orders are already discounted 15% off the one-time purchase price. Your discount code will add 5% off for a total of 20% off subscription orders. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. So it's in other words, to sort of summarize what you're saying, the millennials are very good at changing status quo or recognizing what it means to be human and what's required to be human. Because some of the research I've done has shown that with millennials, it's they're very able to process, able to acknowledge and look at their emotions and talk about them and express them. And that's been almost judged as a negative thing. Meanwhile, it's the best thing. It's the way yeah. we do heal. It's not suppressing does nothing. I mean, suppressing these toxic issues creates such damage in your brain and your body, you would have seen some of that, those results that I put into, into my case studies and my clinical trials and things. But that's what I love about millennials is there's, there's this acknowledgement of, I do feel like this. And that's been judged as being, I don't just, this is what how I'm seeing it as an, as, as someone who's not a millennial, as an, that they, they're being judged. Oh, they always say feeling, talk about their feelings. And then I always say, but that's a good thing. If you talk about your feelings, that's how you process them. Otherwise they control you. So getting them yeah. out is how you control your feelings because you can see what they are and then you can reconceptualize them and you can make them work for you. Otherwise, they're in there burning you up, controlling you. And in your brain, these things cause damage. I mean, these thoughts that we have that we don't deal with are made of proteins. They're physical. They're, like a COVID virus is made of protein. Our thoughts are made of protein. So yeah. if we don't deal with them, we have the same immune response to toxic thoughts as we do to to a COVID virus. We're going to have inflammation and that's going to set us up and increase vulnerability in our body to disease and all kinds of stuff. So we have to get our feelings out. We have to talk. We have to pro, but not just get them out and dump them. We have to go beyond mindfulness. We have to actually process them. Process you know, them, and that's yeah. process them is really important. So in those conversations with the communities, it's so important that they are listening and enable a person to process. And, but each person's got to do it themselves. You can't do it for them. You can just support. And, you yeah. know, that's, that's where Jesus in the garden provides the model. Jesus is processing, but the disciples are just supportive, not you know, not replacing, not giving the painkillers, not, you know, taking him out of the garden, but actually just being there 
to support. Yeah. That's the model if you do. And I think to... our role is to create the space for yes. people to be able to do that. Yes, very much so. Very, very much. And you, you impact there that the millennials, as you mentioned, that the millennials are setting up the for the Gen Zs because Gen Z is the most drug generation that we've ever had of any generation. So if anything, they need the guidance and help that we don't have them falling back into patterns that are similar to the way I grew up. That's, yeah. I have a concern there because of the fact that they're so drugged, they're not being allowed to process their emotions. I don't know how, if you know anything about that or have had any thoughts about that. I haven't done enough research to have formed like very good opinions on that. But I think, you know, Gen Zs, they have it harder than we do as millennials. And every generation after is going to have it slightly harder. And so if the conversation is not opened now, I think it, it gets you kind of fall behind. You know, it's chasing you're almost chasing an avalanche, which you, you really can't do. And I think you'll get to a point where it's, it's, we can't fix it anymore. So I think we, now is a good time to, you know, really kind of open the box of talking about mental health, open the box of creating those safe spaces. It's nice if we did it before, but I think we're, it's a really, really important time for us to be doing that. It's a vital time. It's a window of time that we have to change the narrative because the narrative is bad at the moment, yeah, on yeah. both ends of the spectrum. What we've been doing for 40 years in the mental health world has not worked either. So it has to be a shift back to the narrative of openness. I totally agree that if we don't keep, keep the situation going, we don't fall back into bad patterns. And, then, and yeah, the millennials are really – but that takes a, it's a lot of strain as well mentally. There's a lot of strain in being change agents. There's a lot of yeah. a lot of challenge there because you're coming up against the norm and you're coming up against that. That can be quite hard as well. And that can have a, an impact on mental health too. I mean, and that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's but it's important. But it's important, yeah. So your goal of being part of destigmatizing mental health in Africa and the importance of bringing awareness to mental health on the continent of Africa, does that spread? That's where that's a big heart for you because you were born in Zimbabwe, grew up in South Africa. And I've become sort of a global citizen. Do you feel that that's translating mainly to Africa, or do you, do you feel that sort of once you've got a model going, it translates to the world? Is your is your vision global, or just for Africa? Or well, for me, starting at home is re really important to me, and I do believe that the African continent is behind in a lot of ways when it comes to mental health. And for me, it's important that. What I've learned, I say this, you know, I even say this with entrepreneurship because I'm an entrepreneur. It's the knowledge that I learned being a global citizen, being educated in the United Kingdom, being educated in the United States. I feel I have a responsibility to come back and use that knowledge as a tool to make change and to transform the African continent. I think, you know, we are, we have the youngest populations in the world. <laughs> in Africa and there's just so much potential there and I feel that I have you know I feel like it's part of my responsibility to create the foundation for people to be able to grow in Africa for young people to be able to grow to be able to succeed and for me without a healthy mind there is no growth happening no there's no growth happening messy mind messy life yeah and I do I think I hope Whatever model we end up finding that works for Africa, 
of course, my hope would be that it can be applied globally. But I think for me, it's also, you know, when I look at Zimbabwe or South Africa, for example, I also have an, a deeper understanding of the cultural context of where I'm working. So it, it, you know, makes sense for me. If I were to, what I can apply in, to be honest with you, what I can apply in Zimbabwe, I probably, you know, so, can't apply in some circumstances in South Africa. I can't apply in Nigeria. I can't apply in Ghana. What more going to apply s- somewhere in Asia? So it's, I, you know, it's, we're going to have to learn individual and then ways apply of principles, making, yeah. yeah, the the model applicable across different countries. But I'd like to start with that. With that, well, I think that's sense. an incredible place to start, and it makes so much sense. And I think what you're doing is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I've watched you from a little girl growing to this incredible young woman who's changing the world. And I just want to say, as I'm so proud of you and so impressed with what you've done and how you've turned your experience into something that is really reaching out and helping others. And, you know, you've managed, I mean, you just glossed over the initially the cancer and, and quite quickly and not in a negative sense, but you, you just, you've transformed, you've grown, you've reconceptualized. But I interviewed you very soon after you had your cancer and you already had this mindset. You already were looking at how can I use this to change? And it was already there. You didn't verbalize it like you're verbalizing it now. So to see that in fruition and in action and to see what you're doing with your life is just very, very powerful. And I know you're going to be a leader to many to do the same thing. So I want to just honor you and thank you for that incredible work that you're doing. Well, thank you so much, Caroline. I think, you know, you you do inspire me. I absolutely love your Instagram page. I love reading your books and just learning from you in general. And I think you do incredible work and you've set a foundation for people like myself to be able to try and make a change as well. So thank you for the role that you have played. Oh, that's so kind of you and so sweet of you. And both being from Zimbabwe and Africa, we need to do some stuff together to make these changes happen. So let's I'm look excited. to the future. <laughs> I'm excited too. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to share? And then just tell people where, obviously, where they can find out more about you. But is there anything else you'd like to, you know, a closing statement? In fact, let me ask you this. How do you now currently manage your mental health? How do you, my podcast title is Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. How do you clean up your mental mess? How do I clean up my mental mess? Because we we all all a mess all the time and I'm always cleaning up mine. So, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a few practices that I've adopted over the last couple of years. So one thing that I live by is I call it gratitude journaling, but every morning I write down five things I want to either do or achieve that day. It could be, you know, Saturdays where I'm like, I don't want to work. I really shouldn't be working. I will write, I want to go and stand by the window and enjoy the sunshine from the window. But five things I want to do. And then at the end of the day, I write down five things from that day that I'm grateful for. That really gives me perspective. And, you know, on the days where it's hard and I feel feel like what on earth is there to be grateful for, it could be as simple as I spoke to mom today and that made warm my heart. Another thing that I do when I'm extremely, so I get very anxious and extremely overwhelmed, I'm an overthinker, is I brain dump. So I literally just either it, it can be in an Uber on the way to a restaurant, I'll take up notes on my phone and I'll just like type everything that's going through my mind at that moment everything sometimes I do it in like a voice recording but just like dump that somewhere and then 
move on is really, really so helpful scientific. That's so scientific. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and then just Caroline, I respect my body and I respect my mind just to say to myself, you know what? I'm tired. I'm going to close my laptop. I'm not going to do this right now. I do that. And, you know, I work with my parents and sometimes I know my father thinks I'm absolutely crazy. Like you need to work hard. And I'll be like, I work smart. But when, you know, I was like, when my body is like, no, I need to take a break. I'm going to take a break because when we come back and we're at a hundred percent, we're going to achieve a lot and a lot of great stuff, but I need to learn how to listen to me. So yeah, those are like the three main things that I do. And if I were to like leave with a closing statement, just say it's okay to not be okay. You're just filled with pearls of wisdom. You are filled. I love everything you've said. Pearls of wisdom. It's a delight talking to you. It always has been. It always is. And you've just really, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Mumbai. That's amazing. Where can people find out more about you and follow you and learn from the, what so you do. they can follow me on Instagram. I'm Vim Masiwa, Vimbai Masiwa. And I'll be launching a blog on the 15th of May called Change Tribe, which is really just, you know, people sharing their own stories about mental health. And then we have some great experts on there who will be sharing insights on different topics around mental health. So that would be a great hub of res- a great source of information for people. We launch on the 15th of May, so I'm really excited. Oh, that's wonderful. Congratulations. We'll put the links in the show notes and people can find out more. Can you follow you there? So thank you so much. Thank you for spending this time with me today. It's been beautiful as always. Thank you so much for having me, Caroline. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you again next week. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then... I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.